0: In Acts chapter nine, there is the story of Saul and his conversion. Now not everybody knows their Bibles really well and you might wonder, well, who is Saul? Saul is the guy that eventually we get to know as the Apostle Paul. But before he becomes part of the church family, he's a really zealous Jew fighting for legalism and the Jewish temple and the Mosaic law And his name is Saul. And Saul was the guy that was instrumental last week in putting Stephen to death and persecuting the church. And we carry on the story today in Acts chapter nine. And I'm gonna read bits and pieces of it, but then the text is gonna come back to just a couple of first uh, few verses. Acts nine, verse one. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple. In the Greek, it's like he's a raging lion. It's like he's a flesh ripper, terror. Uh, It's really expressed strongly. Uh, The the murderous threats or breathing out murderous threats isn't bad, but it's not as good as as it could be from the original. It basically says like that he is like a roaring lion, like he's like a, a raving lunatic. He is He's like a psychopath. He's out of his mind. He is going above and beyond to persecute the church. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest. This is the guy that has all of the re- religious authority for Israel. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So he's, he's looking for permission from the Jewish high priest in Jerusalem so that he can travel you know, up the road to Damascus, to Syria, and that he can start you know, doing his dirty work uh, in, the, in regions that are a little bit further out that he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, those that follow Christ, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem." So he feels that he's done everything that he needs to do in Jerusalem, that he's cleared the church out. Now he wants to go to Damascus, but he just can't do that on his own authority. He needs uh, letters. He needs a certificate. He needs permission from the high priest. So he gets those and he's on his way to Damascus so that he can go through the synagogues and in and around those regions and kind of just, you know, uh, filter out any of these followers on of the way. So he's on his way. He's on his way. Let's let's look at verse three. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul says, who are you, Lord? And I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Notice he doesn't say that you're persecuting the church. He says you're persecuting me. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, meaning Damascus, and you will be told what to do, what you must do. Then men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. He's blind. For three days he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he said. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias says this, I love the back and forth with God. Apparently, every once in a while, it's okay for you to go back and forth with Jesus if you're not quite understanding something, right? Right? He says to him, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. This is where this is going. Even if you haven't read this story, this is where this is going. This is a bad idea. Somebody should go talk to this guy, I'm sure, but it ain't me. So Ananias is not looking to get signed up for this because he knows Saul is a raging lunatic. He's heard about all the harm that he's done. Bad news travels really quickly. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call in your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. So you can go back and forth with God, but eventually guess who's gonna win or should win? Yeah, okay, good. We got that settled. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Okay, so you know what? I always talk to you about not blowing through Scripture too quickly. Please don't blow through Scripture too quickly. So the raging lunatic is killing all kinds of people or having all kinds of people killed in Jerusalem and sent to jail. He's got letters of authority now to do basically the same thing in Damascus. He says to Ananias, I'd like for you to go and pray for this guy. Ananias says, that's a bad idea because I've heard about all the crazy stuff this guy does. And then God says to him, beyond the go, he says, this guy is my chosen instrument. Folks the guy who was persecuting the church had Stephen killed, got letters of authority in Damascus. This guy is going to be my chosen instrument to grow the church. And all the people said, God's out of his mind. That doesn't sound like a good plan. I'll tell you why I know it doesn't sound like a good plan because I'm convinced Ananias is more godly than I am. And Ananias is is somewhat confused by this. But God says, I will show him, meaning Saul, how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, don't blow through scripture. He calls him brother Saul. Brother. This guy that's been persecuting the church, Jesus says, he's one of us now. Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now the rest of the church is just thrilled about this. Let's read on. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God the irony of it all. The guy that came there to destroy the followers of the way and to use the synagogues as a means to do that, all of a sudden now was in the synagogues preaching Jesus Christ. You have to realize that this all happened in a few days. In a few days, your life can change. Verse 21, look at this. All that heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc? All that's so cleaned up for us. Isn't that the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is, in the, is the Messiah. Now, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to, to kill him. Because this guy's a force. He's a wrecking ball if, you, if you're following the Mosaic law. This guy's a force. But Saul learned their plan, and day and night, they kept close watching him on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. So they got him out of Damascus. Where did he go? Back to Jerusalem. Back where he started, quote, raising havoc. You folks have another superlative for that. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, tried to join the disciples. Because everybody in Jerusalem had seen him like be responsible for getting Stephen killed and raising havoc, as they say there. They were just so happy to see Saul, they threw parties. There was balloons, there was hats, there was everything. Maybe not. When they came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. They didn't buy it. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And here's our introduction, right? Uh, Well, not our introduction, but here's where we start to get in depth knowing a little bit more about Barnabas. And he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of Jesus. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus from whence he came, right? That was his town. They sent him back to his hometown. And then verse 31, and the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So you have this tumultuous period while Saul is being converted and is converted and is reconnecting with the church in Jerusalem to a period of time. But, but I, I, I wanna deal with the church that's at its best when. And I'm gonna summarize it at the end and say it more succinctly. But the gist of this early on is the church is at its best when we don't like, act like our enemies. Look at verse one of chapter nine. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Saul. Saul was on a mission to persecute the church. I told you that his name was eventually changed to Paul. He he was known to the church as Paul later on in his life. But who is Saul? Saul. If you look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 to 6, you will see that Paul, as a convert now, and as an apostle, as a teacher of the church, he, he represents his credentials in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. And he reminds us of, of all of the things that he had attained while he was a follower of Judaism and the Mosaic law. Look what he says. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Here's his credentials. I was circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and in regard to the law, a Pharisee. In other words, someone else who teaches others how to live according to the Mosaic law. Very religious, right? As for zeal, Persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law. Notice how he words it now as a Christ follower. As for righteousness based upon the law, faultless. Absolutely faultless. This guy, as it comes to practicing Judaism, the Mosaic law, this guy has all his ducks in a row, plus he is a religious leader. Let's continue in Acts 22 and 3. While he is defending himself and the faith, the Apostle Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I stundered under Gamaliel. Gamaliel in the Jewish times was the teacher of teachers. If you went to his quote, rabbinic school, you had the best teacher possible. So I don't know if any of you are in like Snobville when it comes to academia and higher education. I have no idea. But this is the guy that you would wanna sit under. This is the guy that you would do your master's degree with and you would study to get your doctorate. And if you had that guy as your teacher on your resume, you were guaranteed success. He was the best of the best of the best. So when, when the apostle Paul's throwing this name around, if you're if you're a Jew, you're going, Wow. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our, our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. So you've got this really smart, and, and folks, when I'm saying really smart, up it. You've got this really intelligent, well-trained, religiously faultless Jewish guy, a Pharisee, already has attained a certain status, who has said to the chief priest, give me some letters of authority and I will go out and do my best to destroy those followers of the way because Paul saw it as a real and present danger to Judaism, to Israel, to temple worship, he saw the message of Christ being crucified and raised from the day as a tremendous threat. He saw it obviously as a lie. He didn't believe it for a second. He wasn't like one of these guys that like, well, I heard that happened, uh, you know, and, um, and, and I believe that it happened, but I'm just trying to deny it. There's no biblical evidence that Saul of Tarsus was anywhere in and around Jerusalem when Jesus was ministering or crucified. He was probably in, in Tarsus. So, he he wasn't a in any way, shape, or form had firsthand knowledge of the events that took place or Jesus himself, and so he saw everything about that as a farce. This guy was going to destroy the church and everything that had to do with it. This guy was off the leash, and look out, here he comes. The church, as I mentioned last week responded not so much to Saul directly, but scattered. And wherever they went, they preached the gospel. They they were terrified of him for a moment. But as they fled Jerusalem and went to the other regions, Judea, Samaria, they preached the gospel wherever they went. And the book of Acts carries that story on that they were very successful in doing that. demonstrates what God had done in their heart that even under great pressure and great persecution and great difficulty they didn't hide away but they went out and they shared the gospel message and they shared the love of Christ even though they were being persecuted they didn't say this you know what there's all kinds of enemies out there. There's all kinds of people trying to persecute the church. They don't appreciate us. They don't love us. They don't understand that we're good people. They don't understand that we're standing for righteousness. They don't understand that we're standing for God. And so like, you know what? To heck with those guys. I don't want nothing to do with those guys. I'm just gonna sit on the message myself and have nothing to do with them. If they perish, let them perish. If they die, let them die. Let them die in their sin. Who cares? But remember what Stephen said As Saul was giving permission, authority, to those that stoned them, Stephen said, God, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Folks, I want you to hang on to that through the whole sermon, the rest of the message. God, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's how Saul approached his enemies. Destroy them. Look what Luke 6, 27 to 36 says about how the church should respond to our enemies. It says this, again, I'm reading from the NIV. Jesus is speaking to the people. Verse 27 of Luke 6. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Let me continue the thought, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even senders lend to senders expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be the children of the Most High because he is kind and kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now, there's a lot of stuff packed in there, but basically this is it. If we're only nice to one another because we're of one faith, one love, Jesus Christ, that is of no profit to us. That makes us no different from those that are, quote, in this passage called sinners or the unsaved or unbelievers, because even unbelievers know how to be kind to their own kind. And if the church just knows how to be kind to its own kind, it is no different from the world. and we are living in a day and age where we are sorely tempted to be that way because we do feel that there are all kinds of enemies lined up against us. We feel that there are political entities lined up against us as faith people. We feel that there are educational enemies lined up against us, institutional Um other forms of religion, secularism, different kind of sexual preferences and practices. And we could go on and on and list the enemies of the church, per se, or the enemies of the Bible, or the enemies of Christ. And when we get into this unsaved mentality where we're only kind to our own kind. It, it, it means that we're not responding in any different way or redemptive way. It means that we're acting just like Saul did. You got enemies out there? Crush them, destroy them, annihilate them, eradicate them, speak ill of them, laugh at them. Don't pray for them. Don't love them. Don't encourage them. Treat them like they would treat you. But Jesus says this, give to others what they don't deserve. Our motto today sometimes is just kill them. The motto needs to be kill them with kindness. Let me also remind you of this do you remember when you were a unsaved, unbelieving person? You remember? For some of us, it's a long time ago. And there are some of us in this room back in the day when we were not following Jesus Christ, were pretty spiteful of Christian people and pretty spiteful of the church. And we would laugh at the things of God. And we had all kinds of swear words that includes God's name in some shape or form. And we gave no thought to God at all other than negative thoughts. And we spoke against the church and the gospel and we laughed at all about these things and you, you know, you Bible thumpers and you holy rollers and all of those, all of the superlatives, right? And we laughed and we laughed and we laughed and we laughed. And the idea of getting up Sunday morning to go to church was even more laughable. And some of us said this, well, you know what? If you need to go to church, that's fine. Everybody needs a crutch. And if that's your crutch, then you lean on that, right? We had all kinds of ways to talk ourselves out of following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Or we would say, this. Well, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. You know, there's all kinds of people living inconsistent lives there. And I know they go to your church Sunday morning, but you should see them Sunday morning at work. I work with them Monday to Friday and you should see what they're like Monday to Friday. You know, they're not the same people. And and all of that stuff and more was said and more was said. The Bible says that whether we said stuff like that or not, that when you are not a Christ follower, you are dead in trespasses and sins. You are spiritually dead. That we follow the devil. We follow Satan, the father of lies. That's who we are because that's who we are. Pastor Adam led the song that once you're in Christ now, he's a good, good father and that's who we are and our identity is in Jesus Christ. We are born again of the spirit of God. We are the children of God. We are adopted into his family. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. All that Romans 8, 16 and 17 says is absolutely true. That's who we are now. But who we were before, we were the enemies of God whether we deemed ourselves or branded ourselves that way or not, that's what Ephesians chapter two verses one to four says, we are enemies of God, we are enemies of the church, even if we were nice unsaved people, and I just bet you some of you were. You are still an enemy of Christ. You may not have been breathing out murderous threats and, 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 and wreaking havoc on the church like Saul was, but we were still the enemy. But now we're saved. And yes, I want you to understand that I appreciate this as your pastor, as a church leader, and as just somebody who loves Jesus. I am very aware that Jesus and the church have real enemies. There are real people out there with real agendas that are anti-Christ, anti-Bible, anti-church. I understand that. I don't want you to think that I'm dismissing that in any way. I am not dismissing that in any way. And I understand that sometimes they say some incredible things and live in some incredible ways and sometimes are really hard on us and think that, again, that we're all narrow-minded prudes and we don't have an ounce of compassion and judge everybody all the time. And you know what? Some of that may actually be true of some of us. Probably is of some of us. But we're called to be the people of God and react in a different way. We're not to react like Paul, or pardon me, like Saul did. Let's, let's see about this. Romans chapter 12. How are we really supposed to respond to our enemies? Again, we saw how Saul did it. Kill them. Romans 12, 17 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, God will square things up. It's not our job to square things up. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you got this wonderful metaphor, which is understood and misunderstood by many ways, by many people in many ways. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. In our our society, that doesn't translate well at all. Dig into it. Do not be overcome by, oh, this is, this is the one. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, we know we got enemies. We know they're not nice. We know they're anti-Christ, anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-church, anti what the Bible teaches. But the Bible doesn't say tit for tat, wreak havoc on them, destroy them, make fun of them, mock them, judge them. The Bible says this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There is no room for hate or even the derogatory remarks. Every person that's ever followed God has lived in a world that was secularized and immoral. If you want to go all the way back to Abram in Genesis 12, living in land of the Chaldeans, as it was eventually became. If you want to talk about Israel going into the Promised Land and all the filth that they had to deal with there, and in Egypt in captivity, you want to talk about Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego living under the Babylonian and the Persian kings. Can you imagine the raunch that was going on in those places? or whether it's the church of the first century dealing with Rome and all of its debaucheries. The church has always, or the people of God, have always been around in difficult times. Our time is no more difficult than their times in many ways. Now, I know the Bible tells us in Timothy as we get closer and closer to the end times that the love of most will wax cold, right? We know, and and we don't know if we're 20 years from that or 200 years from that, but we know it's going that way. But God's word doesn't change. Even if society gets worse, we're still to be the people of God. And we're still to love our enemies. So I have as this title here, is this heading, be realistic, but also be redemptive. And if you don't like that, put it this way, be redemptive, but also be realistic. We are still called to reach this world, regardless of all of the sin that's going on in it, that you find offensive and things that are going on and things that are on TV and people who are doing it and are on TV and on the radio and every, in the movies or wherever else it might be. All of that that disgusts you. And rightly so. But be realistic, but also be redemptive. We all know we have real flesh and blood enemies. There are people, there are organizations, there are institutions, there are movements that are conspiring against the kingdom of God. We know that. That's always been there. I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist here. I I don't buy into a lot of that. But I also want to be realistic that we have real enemies, But there's something worse lurking, and you're so happy you came to church today. There's something worse lurking. Look at Ephesians 6, verse 10. This is where the real enemy is, folks. Saul's not the real enemy. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, guess who writes this? Converted Saul, the Apostle Paul. Years later, Saul writes this, Paul writes this, finally. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Because trust me, he's scheming. For our struggle is not against me when I was unconverted. Church, struggle is not against the people, the flesh and blood, the names that you can name, the people that represent the things that you find so difficult to hear and listen to. Verse 12, Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Against the powers of this dark world. That represents all of the institutions and stuff and the people. But it takes us even beyond that and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Basically what it's saying like this, our real enemy is the devil. Now, he works through people and he works through institutions and organizations and all of that stuff, but that's the real enemy. Saul thought he was working for God in Acts chapter nine, but he was working for Satan. Now, if you'd have said that to him in that moment, he'd have punched you in the nose, I think. But he would have realized later that when I thought I was doing God's work, I was doing the devil's work, and I'm sure he would have been horrified by that. How could somebody who says he's zealous for God be so wrong, and actually ended up persecuting the people of God. That's why even in Jerusalem, for a while, right, they're not sure about this guy. And eventually, let's send him back to his hometown. Let's get him out of town for a while, let things settle down, and then maybe we'll reintroduce this guy later. And wow, what a reintroduction he gets, right? Colossians 4 says this. Paul, again the writer he talks about the, our, our conduct towards outsiders or unsafe people. In Colossians 4, 4-6, Paul says, Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, meaning the gospel, as I should. But then he says to us, he says to the church, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Outsiders here is just a nice way of saying those are not of the faith at this time. Just like we were at one time. And we were enemies of God and persecuted the church and made fun of all of you holy rollers that were here back, well, in my case, I got saved in 81. So all of you guys that were doing church back in the 70s. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everybody. If I can word it for you this way, Don't make enemies of your enemies. Don't make enemies. Now you're saying, really Brent? Now you're just getting cute with words and phrases. We know there are enemies. We know what's behind them, who's behind them. We understand all of that. Paul says though, when you have an opportunity to share your faith with somebody who we know is an enemy, whether they're overt or stated They are because they're walking in darkness. He says, make the most out of every opportunity. Don't say this. Well, you know, did you know, you know, pardon me, Adam, but this is only safe for staff. You know, you know the way Adam lives. Can't really witness to Adam because you know, he's one of those. So I wouldn't talk to him because he's, he's one of those. So let's find a nice, unsaved person. Okay, you know, Sandy, I feel comfortable. Well, here's Sandy. Sandy's just working hard. Doesn't seem to be like, you know, knows everybody in Essex, by the way. Doesn't seem to be, you know, ever speak out against the church or anything like that. Doesn't seem to have ideas that are contrary to the things of God. She just hasn't had Jesus shared. So we'll share with Sandy because she's a pretty cleaned up, unsaved person but we can't share with Adam because he's an unclean, unsaved person. You understand the foolishness of that, right? Bible says if we don't know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're dead in trespasses and sin. I don't care how nice you are or how unnice you are, but you could work on it, okay? I don't care if you're living that lifestyle or living that lifestyle. I don't care if your Facebook postings approve of this stuff or accuse that stuff. It doesn't matter because they're both dead in trespasses and sins and need Jesus. And whether one is speaking out against the church or not or against God or not or against the Bible or not, it doesn't really matter. They, they both need Jesus Christ, right? Like the worst of the worst sinner needs Jesus Christ, right? And the best of the worst sinners need Jesus Christ, right? Right? So the Bible says, make the most out of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be filled with hate. Let it always be filled with hate. You know, Adam, really? Let me just share with you a few choice thoughts. And because I'm a coward, I'm gonna do it on Facebook and post it. Let your conversation always be full of grace. Grace. Season with salt. In other words, provoke people, but nicely. Provoke them to think about God. Provoke them to think about righteousness. Provoke them to think about what a life without Jesus is all about. Provoke them, maybe that, you know, how they're living isn't, isn't what God would call for us in the Bible. Season with salt. Some of us in the church, and this is the other extreme, where we're, where we're almost so accepting that it's almost to the point that nobody needs Jesus You're doing fine the way you are. Just keep going. That's okay. Everybody gets through the pearly gates. Did you hear they did a rental program? They expanded them. And it doesn't matter anymore. Everybody's going to get there one way or the other. That's not the church either. Season with salt. So that you may know how to answer everybody. I'm done. We are trying to win the unsaved, the unconvinced, and the unloved. Let me say it again. We are trying to win the unsaved, the unconvinced, and the unloved to Christ. How can we do that if we treat them disrespectfully? The old adage, hate the sin, but love the sinner. You know what? I was never a fan of that in the past. I think I like it now. In this context, I think I really like it. An old adage, but maybe still a good one. The church, it's at its best when we love the worst by behaving our best. Let's stand and pray.